That's right. Good evening, guys. It's good to see you um, here tonight. Um, tonight is a discussion on, uh, continued discussion on New Testament ethics, and particularly we're talking about marriage, concept of marriage, and uh, divorce. Uh, most of the primary conversation will, will, will um, revolve around the concept of marriage in the, in the Christian community. Um, divorce will be, uh, kind of comes into it, um, but it's kind of a, a big topic in and of itself. Um, Bruce and I were just talking before, and he was listening to a podcast today. How long did the conversation go between the two guys? An hour and a half. He listened to a podcast specifically on the concept of Christian di- divorce within the Christian ethic, and it went for an hour and a half. So um, putting together marriage and divorce in one presentation um, might, might be a big bite. So uh, but anyways, as we were talking here, Christian ethics, as you see the definition at the top there, Christian ethics would be the principles derived from Christian faith by which we act. The conversation we've been having ongoing is New Testament ethics. What does it mean to live out your Christian faith? What is required of us within our understanding of who Christ is um, to live out our faith? And ultimately, as we've talked about throughout this entire conversation, it's really been anchored to the idea of Jesus himself. What is what does Jesus ask of us? And as Christians, ultimately, it is to reflect the nature of who Jesus Christ is. That's really, that's really the ethic that we as Christians have. And, as, and particularly as we have this conversation about marriage, uh, and, marriage and, and, and the other concept of divorce here, you'll see that it's really anchored in who Jesus Christ is. This is what it is. Uh, this is what Christian marriage is really ultimately about. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to open with a few verses that become kind of the foundation points or the, uh, the outflow points of everything else that comes here, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump in and out of some of these verses. But if somebody would look up Genesis 2:24 for me, Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 6, and Ephesians 5:31. Um, uh, cool. The, these verses you're going to see um, are, are kind of, um, um, sorry, with tent. Uh, tent poles for this conversation, and you'll see that they're over time. They're they're throughout Scripture. So if if you got Genesis two twenty four, go ahead and read that for me. All right, and then somebody read for me Matthew nineteen three through six, which is Christ speaking. Okay, go ahead. Okay, and then somebody read with me for me Ephesians five thirty one. Go ahead. Okay, so we see something that is consistent throughout here, right? So in Genesis chapter two, uh, it's it, it's following the creation of man and woman, and it says, um, for this reason. 
a man will leave his mother and father, and the two shall be, and, and be joined to his, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus then says, when he's asked about the concept of divorce, he then describes marriage, and he says, have you not read, because God created a man and woman, the two, uh, the man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then you jump ahead to Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul makes the same declaration. He says, a, a, a man will, will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see here the tent poles of the conversation about what marriage is. Consistent throughout, right? Here's Genesis, the expression uh, at the point of creation, this concept of marriage. He says, because God, he says, God created man and woman, and it's for this reason that a man leaves his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus then says, dude, haven't you guys heard? Didn't you guys, haven't you guys read that God created a man and woman? And it's for this reason that man will leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul in Ephesians comes back and says, guys, for this reason, a man leaves his mother and father, and the two shall become one flesh. There is a consistency here in the concept of marriage. And when you see that consistency throughout, there are deep implications as to what it means. And the starting point of the conversation is, what is Christian marriage? What is Christian marriage? And understand, this is our conversation we're having. We're a bunch of Christians talking about marriage, and what's important to that topic is Christian marriage. What is Christian marriage? And the first thing you have to start out with is what we just read, which is marriage is established and it is defined by God. When we talk about the idea of marriage, this isn't a human institution. This isn't this idea we came up with. Why, why do I say that? Because I go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. At the very beginning, he says, he says, because I created man and woman, a man will leave his mother and father the, uh, and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. Why marriage? What did he do? At the very creation of man and woman, they're saying the creation of man and woman establishes marriage. The creation of man and woman establishes marriage. How do I know that? Because I see it in the commentary in Genesis, and I see Jesus referring to the commentary in Genesis and says, this is marriage. There is a foundational idea. This is, not, this is not an institution established by man. This is an idea and an institution established by God at the creation of man. And what's important to note is that this commentary is inserted into the narrative of the creation story. That's, think, just think about that. When you open up Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and you kind of walk through, it's a narrative. It's a story. This is God creating. And so we kind of walk through it, right? On the first day he created this, second day he created that, third day he created this. We're kind of going through the narrative of the creation of man and, and earth and creatures and everything. And then all of a sudden he inserts in there he, 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 the story of man and woman being created. He's doing this whole thing. And what's inserted there ostensibly by, by Moses, as, as Moses is writing the, the Pentateuch and, and, and recording the creation story, um, as some believe, 
he, he says, here's the commentary. Here's the story of him creating man and woman, and this is why a man will leave his parents, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. God, in the creation of man and woman, established the institution of marriage. And then, and then Jesus uh, refer, re references um, this establishment. And in doing that, he confirms the, the universal um, nature of the institution. So we as Christians, we as Christians, let me ask you this question. What do we as Christians follow? And I'll give you a hint. It, there, there's, a, there's a big hint in the word Christian. What do we follow? We follow Christ. We follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. We follow what Christ believes. The, and, this is the, and, and this is really kind of an important idea that we as Christians need to understand. We're, 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 not, we're not Moseans. We're, we're not Davidians. Right? We don't, we, don't, we don't confess to following the teachings of Moses. We don't confess to following the teachings of, uh, of David. They inform our Christian faith. They inform our Christianity. And what we ultimately do is we go, what did Jesus teach? We, we're Christians. We follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus teach? And you'll see, even in our passages today, you'll see that Jesus affirms some things from the Old Testament and he, and, he, um, and he rejects other things from the Old Testament. Have you known that? Have you guys ever noticed that? Right? Remember when he says, You've, you have heard it written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, when Jesus says you've, you've, you've heard it said or you've seen it written, do you know what he's referring to? Well, he's referring to it's in the Old Testament. It's written in the Old Testament. So, so, so Jesus is saying, yes, the Old Testament says this, but I'm not affirming that. I'm not saying I agree with that. In fact, I'm saying, I'm coming to say I don't agree with that. Jesus has no problems pointing out for people where he agrees with the Old Testament and where he doesn't agree with the Old Testament. In this regards, he says, guys, haven't you heard it written? That, that God created him. Don't you guys remember that God created man and woman and it's for that reason? The creation of male sex, female sex, brought together by God, it's the institution of marriage. So we as Christians sit and we look at this and we go, hey, there's something really, really clear. What is Christian marriage? Well, Christian marriage is established and defined by God. It's his establishment. It's not our creation. It's not our idea. It's not man saying, oh, this is just our kind of thing. So when people out there who are secularists or people out there who aren't Christians or people out there who are whatever, who talk about, oh, well, Christianity is just this, like, man-made institution. It's not. It is a God-made institution at creation affirmed by Jesus Christ whom we follow. That's it. So what is it? It is it, marriage. What is what is Christian marriage? It, mar Christian marriage is something that's established and defined by God, and the definition is actually laid out, which is where we as we as Christians are in opposition to a secular view of marriage. Um, it is between one man and one woman. How do I know this? 
because it's what Jesus, Jesus said. When people talk about the idea of inclusive language around marriage, read again what Jesus said about Matthew 19, in Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 6. It's not inclusive at all. In fact, it's very exclusive. Do you not know that God created him man and woman, and it is for this reason that a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife? All of these are gender-specific terminologies, okay? And they are defined in two things. One man, one woman, that's marriage. Any questions about that? Now, remember, this is, again, when we call ourselves Christians, what do we teach? What do we follow? The teachings of who? Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in this declaration, creates the definition. And this is important to understand because Christ, in this, is affirming the Old Testament standard and continues that standard. There, th this is why people, when they talk about this idea that, well, Jesus is silent about fill in the blank. First of all, Jesus isn't silent in this regard. He actually affirms it. But the implication you can get for when Jesus doesn't challenge something is that he's going along with it. In other words, in other words there are ideas in the Old Testament that says this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And Jesus is very much aware of those. He knows about them. So as an example, in the Old Testament, rape is wrong. It is, it is morally wrong. It is a violation of God's laws. And in the Old Testament, you know what happened to somebody who, was, who committed rape? The penalty was death. You know, Jesus knew that, but he never says anything about rape. How many of you think that means that Jesus doesn't really doesn't think rape is wrong? Or do you think he looked at it and said, well, no, everybody here understands this is wrong. I don't have to speak to it. But when he does speak to things, he, he, he at times affirms and he at times opposes. So in other words, what I mean by all of what I'm saying right here is when Jesus comes in and says marriage is between a man and a woman, he's affirming an Old Testament idea. He doesn't have a problem with getting up and saying, well, as I said earlier, I know that this is what they taught back here. This is actually what I think. Jesus believes that marriage is between a man and a woman, one man, one woman. And the reason I know that is because he says it. Um, anybody, anything beyond that, any other idea beyond that, goes outside the teachings of, of, of um, Christianity. And that's why the next point I make, the only Christian marriage is the marriage between one man and one woman. There are dozens and dozens of examples of marriage in the biblical narrative and in instruction in the Bible. All of them are about a man and a woman. In the Old Testament, we have narratives that break this definition as it relates to, to marriage, right? What's, the, what, what's, one, what's one of the narratives we have in the Old Testament that breaks this definition of one man and one woman? Multiple wives. 
But there is nothing in the teaching of Jesus Christ or his apostles that affirm multiple wives. It is always one man, one woman. And since, I, as I said earlier, I'm not, a follower of, uh, I'm not a follower of the Old Testament, a follower of Jesus Christ, in which sometimes Jesus affirms the Old Testament, sometimes he doesn't. But as Christians, we need to understand is the Old Testament isn't our standard. It informs our standard, but isn't our standard. Our standard is Jesus. And so as we look at this passage, there is absolutely no one who in, with any level of intellectual integrity can make the argument that there is any other kind of marriage, Christian marriage, other than the marriage between one man and one woman. You can't make that argument. The, there is nothing. You can make the argument, well, well they don't, they're not against it. Okay. So in other words, you can make the argument, well, Jesus never speaks specifically against um, two guys marrying. Okay, cool. But if I'm going to go along with what Jesus is, he also never affirms that. So if I was a follower of Jesus Christ, the best you can do is not affirm it. If you don't want to speak against it, cool, don't speak against it. But he does affirm marriage between a man and a woman, and he doesn't affirm any other kind of marriage. Now, I think, I think because the Old Testament does speak against it and Jesus doesn't correct it, and because the apostles of Jesus speak against um, homosexuality, that does inform me then to go, well, I don't think it's, I, I think I have to go along with that. One of the crazy things that I, I love hearing from people is how they're like, well, Paul Paul didn't really get this right, because Paul's pretty actually, I would say it's safe to say Paul is in, opposed to homosexuality in his writings. It's fair to say, isn't it? And again, as I say that, even understand this. He's not against homosexuals, okay? He, he's not, and by that, what I mean is he's not against people who have same-sex attraction. He's actually very specific and he talks about acts of homosexuality. And we'll talk about this a little bit later as we, as we get in this. The idea being, we are called to make our, sexual, our sexuality subservient to Jesus Christ. We lay that down before him. And so, God, I, hey, we all have attractions in our lives. We all have desires in our life that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we're all called to make those desires subservient to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul specifically talks about these acts that are, that are wrong. But even if you want to set that aside for a moment, in which people go, well, Paul didn't really interpret Jesus well, which is unbelievable to me. Jesus, Paul, who was literally a contemporary of Jesus, who knew his culture better than any of us possibly could, didn't do as good of a job interpreting the teachings of Jesus as you do 2,020 years later? It's a foolish thought. It's a foolish argument for people to make. So anyways, as you walk through this, what, we, what is very, very clear about the definition is, first and foremost, um, it, is, it is between uh, men and women. It is between one man and one woman. And it is intended to be forever, right? So what, so, what, so what Jesus says in there is what, what God has brought together, what? 
let no man tear asunder. So, the, so, so what he's talking about is the ideal, the Christian ideal of marriage is one man, one woman, united in, in fidelity, faithful one to another forever. This is the definition that we see, not my definition, but the definition that Jesus Christ gives. Um, any thoughts or questions on that? Does it seem hard to understand? Okay. Um, and yet it's funny that it is, right? Um, second of all, why Christian marriage? Now, this is an important idea for each of us to wrestle with because you have to sit and go, okay, with that being what Christian marriage is, why did he institute Christian marriage? Why did God institute marriage? If we all agree that from the beginning marriage was instituted by God, as a universal concept tied to the, the creation of man and woman to be carried throughout that Jesus Christ himself affirmed and then reaffirmed by Paul in Ephesians. If, if this is what marriage is, why did he establish marriage? What, what is the reason for it? What, what is the intent behind it? And at the, at the, at the core of it is um, he's, he's revealing the nature of God one of the things is he's revealing the nature of God in man through marriage, okay? So, so one of the things as we talk through this is always important about every believer's life is that man was created for what reason? Why was man created? Anybody have an idea? Go ahead in the back. For God, okay. For what reason for God? To glorify God. To glorify man. The, the sole purpose of man is to worship God, to magnify God, to glorify God. One of, the, one of the best ways to really understand that terminology from the original language is really to make God plainly seen, to, to reveal him, to magnify, like, like a magnifying glass. What does a magnifying glass do to something that's small? You can see it better, right? So the idea is we were created to glorify God, to magnify God, to, to um, reflect God, to, to show forth him. And that happens in a lot of different ways within our lives. Our salvation is to magnify or to show the mercy of God to mankind, uh, the, mer the nature of him being merciful. Even the judgment that God brings on those who are lost is to show Jesus, is to show God, the nature of God, as holy as righteous. Are you following what I'm saying? So when he institutes marriage, part of what he's doing in the institution of marriage is revealing the nature of, of God himself. As we walk through this, you'll see this in, in different ways. But, but um, it, first and foremost, he's revealing in this imagery the unity that is in the Godhead. Um, use, this as, use this as a picture. So so th there's specific descriptions of, and the two shall become one, right? This is that unity that comes together where it's, it's, it's out, of, out of two, one, right? Um, what do we know about the Godhead itself? What is that? Three and what? Three and one. So what you're showing here is you're showing this revelation where God is saying, I want to show 
the concept of unity, of, of the coming together, creating in one. He's, he's revealing in here that a, a, um, a earthly, a human expression of the unity that we see in the Godhead. And, and, and that, that's why the whole language and the whole terminology is in that idea. I want you guys to be united together. And then he shows forth within that the fidelity of God to his people. So it really is, when you talk about two becoming one, it really is a, a trifold thing. That's why a three-chord uh, strand is not broken when it talks about the concept of marriage. So what you have is you have husband, wife, and the Holy Spirit all engaged in that. That's one of the things that's really beautiful about the early understanding within the, the, the Christian church about marriage. It was, it was, we are united, we are united in, with each other as one, including the Holy Spirit. So it's a three-in-one picture that is also within, within the Godhead. So he's revealing that, and he's showing within there, he's saying, I, we are faithful one to another. Within the Godhead, they are faithful one to another, and therefore you are to be faithful one to another. This is why Jesus' expression leads into what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. The whole conversation Jesus is having here is they basically are coming to him, and they're saying, um, well, can, we, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Do you know why they were asking that question? Because that was essentially the, the, the law under Moses. Under Moses, it was essentially, well, if she's problematic, if there's issue here. Now, there were, there were instructions as to the care for her, them and that kind of thing. But he's like, if you want to put her away and, and marry somebody else, cool. And Jesus was like, no, there's a fidelity that I'm asking for within the context of marriage that reflects the fidelity that, that the Godhead has together and then also that the Godhead has with his people. He is faithful to them. And then that's why how many times over and over again have you seen throughout Scripture the imagery of husband and wife and the infidelity between husband and wife and the fidelity of husband and wife being used as a picture of the relationship between God and his people. Are you following what I'm saying? Marriage has, this, marriage has this imagery that God is trying to say, I want to show forth. So why marriage? I want to show people who God is. The unity that is found in the, in the Godhead, the fidelity that is found within the Godhead towards his people. I want that to be the image that marriage is. I want to stop here because I want you guys to understand the depth of Christian marriage. I want you to understand that this isn't just this thing that we, we get into because we want to have sex with somebody. This isn't just this thing that we enter into because, oh, she's really cute and he's really cool, so let's get together and see how it goes. The Christian person should, should face marriage with such deep soberness. He is calling me to represent the very Godhead in a way that shows forth to people the nature of God. This is the marriage I'm entering into. This is the, the institution rooted from the, from, the, from the creation of man for the presentation of God for all the world. How many of you really believe that? Isn't that a beautiful understanding that goes beyond the Our world is ugly. And the ugliness of our world has tainted 
marriage. That and that that's why for me, dude, I like like whatever. Whatever whatever you guys want to do, whatever you guys want to say, whatever that is out there, I don't really freaking care. But me, we in the church should hold this deeply sacred because God has created something that we as Christians should believe in and, and love and want and desire to preserve and keep holy. And that, that speaks to just so much of this, and it speaks to sexuality and the whole deal. Um, it satisfies the human need. Why, why Christian marriage? Because it satisfies the human need in man as the image of God. Um, somebody read for me Genesis 2, 18 through 22. Uh, I think you can, yeah. So God declares from the beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. How many of you have noticed that that is still true today? Right? How many sociological studies do we get about people who are living in isolation? Why is one of the, one of the greatest punishments you could ever give somebody in prison or in jail is to put them in isolation by themselves, separated from all contact? Why is it that, why is it that children who have regular contact, uh, love, and, and, and fellowship with mom is healthier than people who are, right? I mean, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of disorders that take place in humanity when you're not connected to and not bonding with and not in fellowship and relationship with people, right? That's reality. What is declared here is God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And it's not good for man to be alone. And so what is created in, in each one of us is the need for community and fellowship. And the reason why I believe that it is true and I believe that is a reality is because man was created in the image of God. God in, in, the, in the Godhead in Trinity was in perfect fellowship, perfect communion. That's, that's a part of the nature of God. God himself is not alone. He is in community within, within the Godhead. And so we were created in the image of God, and part of what we carry in that is the need for community and for the need for relationship. And so God says it is not good for man to be alone. And so the very first institution he establishes to answer the, the need for man to be in fellowship and community is marriage. It is an answer to what we have, this, this hole, this gap, this space we have in ourselves. And he says, I create marriage so that you can have that. Now, he, 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 there's, there's other elements in which, he, in which he does that. So then what flows out of, what flows out of the need for community and relationship, what flows out of marriage then is family. 
And what ultimately flows out of that is also the community of Christ. That's, that's one of the reasons why the Bible teaches all the time the need for the body of Christ to be together and in unity and one with another and fellowship and caring for each other and all that kind of things. Because God is continually trying to answer the need for man to not be alone. It's one of the reasons why Jesus Christ, why Jesus Christ says, I will be with you forever, for always, right? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's always talking about this idea. He, and he says, I'm not going to leave you an orphan as an orphan. When I leave, I'm going to send the comforter. God has always been concerned about, about the, the need for man to be in fellowship and in community. And he established marriage for that reason. So, so far, why do we have marriage? Number one, so that it can, it can embody, it can show uh, an expression of the Godhead. Number two, because it meets a need that is left in us as a result of our, uh, uh, of our being created in the image of God. And so, therefore, we, we have a need to be in community. And finally, because it embodies and models the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, before we, somebody look up the passage and, 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 and read that for me in just a second. But before we read it, I want to remind you, we exist to glorify God, to magnify God, to show forth God, that we live as illustrations of God. And, one of the, and, one, and, and within the aftermath of Christ and the work of Christ, so we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's why we as Christians are meant to live out the gospel. When we talk about that, remember, as we talk about that, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection, the glorification, the good news of Jesus Christ in his totality. And so we live out the gospel for what reason? To live as, we're living illustrations of Jesus Christ, right? So now we step into this picture of marriage and we go, well, why? Now, now as you read this, remember, when I just said is, is all over the New Testament, it's all over the epistles, it's all over the descriptions, uh, it's all over the writings of the apostles, right? For, forgive as what? As you were forgiven. Love like what? Love in the way he loved you first. All these different things. He always attaches the ethic of Christianity, what it is to live out the Christian life, to the nature of Jesus himself. So now when he steps into the picture of what a marriage, a Christian marriage should look like, what does he tie it to? Somebody if you've got Ephesians 5, um, starting, uh, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22 through 27, and then jump to 32, 33. Somebody read that for me. Anybody have it yet? Okay, go ahead.
Okay. So what's important to start out in this conversation is essentially the last declaration that, that, that Paul makes there, right? The last declaration that Paul makes here is, I'm speaking about Christ in the church. However, husbands love your wives and wives respect their husbands. Now, everything we read up to that point, it really sounded like he was talking about marriage, didn't it? Husbands, submit to your wives. Husbands, or wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, uh, um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It really sounded like he was talking about marriage, didn't he? And then he flips it around and he says, oh, I'm talking about, I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about the, the Christ in the church. What he's essentially doing there is he's saying, He's doing everything he can to do this. Bring those together. He's doing everything he can to make you understand, I am trying to lay down marriage so that it looks and acts and behaves the way Christ interacts with the church. I'm trying to bring these together to let you know the intent here is so that Christ is revealed in a relationship between a man and a wife in the beautiful institution of marriage that God established all the way back at creation. The idea behind this is we are called to this kind of marriage so that we embody and are a living illustration of the gospel story of Jesus Christ. Why Christian marriage? So that Christ may be revealed in us. And what's interesting about that is you move, you move from you move from the idea that why of Christian marriage, and the why of Christian marriage is so that Christ might be revealed. And then you go to the question, the next question, which is the how of Christian marriage, and you realize the how of Christian marriage is so that, is through revealing Christ. Okay? Follow, follow what I'm saying here? Is the why of Christian, Christian marriage is so that Christ might be revealed, and the how of Christian marriage the, the, the how Christian marriage is effective begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ in community. And what I mean by that is um, that when we look at uh, Christian marriage, so much of it is tied to who Christ is. And what I just said, we'll, 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 we'll flip down further, we'll, we'll be more revealed later on. But Christian marriage is meant to be done in equality uh, in equal, equality and diversity or complementarianism, okay? So the starting point of this conversation is we all stand before God equal. So the cross of Jesus Christ makes us all equal. There is no hierarchy in the body of Christ. Men do not rule over women. Women are not subservient to men. Women are not servants of men. Women are not slaves of men. Okay? There is an equality between, because of the cross, because of the gospel, there's an equality that reigns. Now, how do I, why, do, why can I say that? Why do I, why, why do I use that? When we, when, we, when we step into the passage there that says, wives submit to your husbands, the word that Paul selects there conveys intentionally Equality. Okay? Submission for a Christian should not be a problem. Submission for a Christian should be a very, 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 very natural thing. 
um, or a natural part of our understanding of what it means to be Christian. It might not be natural in our humanity, but when you look at the framework of what it means to be a Christian, it is, it is, it is the act of submission. The, the verse prior to the one we just read where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, said, submit one to another. Same word, same word is used there. And in that context, it's talking about us as Christians together, us in community. The implication there is not that, the implication here is not that, you know, like, like George, George is higher than Bruce, so Bruce should submit to George. The implication is literally that they're, that they're equal. But as a reflection of who Christ is, we willingly lay down for our brother and sister in Christ because we want good for them. Okay? That is a natural understanding as a Christian. You do that. You go, it's cool. Now, this is, goes, now we, is, we, we talk about this in my marriage group. That is, if you were to talk in the, American, in the American culture, this idea of submission, slavery, could you serve it, be a servant? How many people, like, you, you couldn't come up with a worse word than submitting to others, right? Like, you couldn't come up with a worse concept. Well, that was very much the same in the first century church, or very first century culture. The Romans were not given to submission. The Greeks were not given to submission. And really, even the Jews were not given to the concept of submission. That was seen as, as demeaning, as lower. But Jesus came in in a very revolutionary concept and said, well, no, we submit to one another. It's totally cool. It doesn't mean you're less than them. It doesn't make you a slave of them. It means from your position of equality, you willingly, out of love, set yourself down to serve them because you care about them. So you have to understand that the declaration that is made here by, um, by Paul to wives is not you're under them. It's not. He's, the word that would be used here, there's another passage, there's another, there's another uh, instruction in 1 Corinthians where it says, uh, children, obey your parents. That, the, the Greek word that's used there is to show the disparity in authority. Paul could have used that word here, where he could have said, wives obey your, parent, your, your, wives obey your, your, your husbands, but he doesn't. He uses a specific word that in, that's used the same as us as brothers and sisters in Christ that he uses to indicate equality. So he calls, us to, they call, he calls wives to submission in that regard where they basically say, I love my husband, I want good for my husband, I want to honor my husband, and so I'm willing to, to submit to his leadership, to his, to his relationship within this. And then, he, and then it goes in there and it talks about it as unto Christ, and so it's really not a submission to, anyways, it's a submission to the law of God. But then you step back further, and this is why it's so important for us to understand the teachings that, that are here that so many people pervert. Wives, submit to your husbands, blah, 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 blah. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Okay? How many know what he's talking about there? If you don't, we'll have a conversation. I'll lead you to Christ. What he's talking about there is the act of Jesus Christ who gave himself to the cross. The great, the great description of this is in Philippians in which it says, uh, Christ who humbled himself even to death on the cross. So the calling here is husbands 
show the humility and the submission that Jesus Christ showed for the salvation of the church towards your wife. What this means is husbands are called to lay down not just their wants, but even at times their needs to meet the needs of their wife. There is no greater call of submission in all of the description in Scripture other than what Christ did, than the, than the, than the requirement, than the um, um, biblical imposition of responsibility that is put on a husband here. So every time somebody reads that and goes, why are you supposed to submit to your husband? Yeah? Yep. And husbands, you're supposed to submit, humble yourself, sacrifice yourself, give everything of yourself if it's required to bring salvation and hope and life to your wife. And what are both of these doing? They're both imaging Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about imaging Christ. Each of the calls here in Scripture fulfills the role for the greater good of complementing one another. There is a need that, that husbands have, that men have in relationship, that, that wives are called to step into. And there's a need that wives have in relationship that men are called into. And it all comes, it all flows from the gospel image and the gospel act and the gospel work of Jesus Christ. Do you see the depth of Christian marriage and why it is foundationally important that the Christian church continue to defend Christian marriage? Let the world do what they want. I don't care. I really don't. I mean, I, I swear to you, I don't care. So-and-so can marry so-and-so. They can divorce that person. They can do this thing. They can jump around from this to that to whatever else. Don't care. But if you're going to claim Jesus Christ, it is the image of Jesus Christ we are called to embody. And so we live that out. That's why it's so important that we, that we continue to defend it. Um, and again, submission here is in the image of Christ. It is a fully Christian idea, and as a result of Christ's act of submission, it is expected of everyone. And, and the other reason for this is to fulfill... Um, a Christian expression of love. Um, the goal of Christian marriage is the perfection and the completion of the objects of our affection. What do I mean by that? Where do I get it from? Okay. So it goes into it and it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then there's this whole litany, right? Washing her with the word, presenting her to himself without spot or wrinkle, right? He's bringing the imagery of what Christ does for the church to the relationship that takes place in marriage, right? What did Christ come to do? He came to bring fulfillment to the destinies of the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, what I mean by that is, what, 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 did God, what, is, what does God want for us? God wanted us to be drawn to him, our sins washed away, us being made perfected, us for being clean, and, and, and our identity to be fulfilled in relationship with the Heavenly Father, and that's what Christ came to do. Now, the way in which I've always understood this and the way in which I've always applied this in my own life um, was that my responsibility as a husband is to make sure that my wife becomes everything God has called her to be. My responsibility is to look at her and go, 
I need to make sure that whatever God has for her life, whatever, whatever, whatever purpose God has for her, whatever, whatever it is that God wants her to be, I have to do everything I can to make sure that she is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that's a heart that also is reflected then. The wife has that same heart for her husband. That's why it talks about this idea of respect, the way in which it's defined there, and the idea of submission, where she says, I look at him, and I want him to become everything that God wants him to be. And so sometimes if that means I lay down my wants for that, cool. But I want him to become everything that God has called him to be because that's what Jesus Christ did for his church. This has always been a defining idea. When I was, a, when I was 15 years old um, in, in Pastor Harmon's um, uh, religion class at Milwaukee Lutheran, I can remember that. I can remember that from 15 years of age, he, we went through this passage, and he says, guys, as husbands, your responsibility is to make sure that your wife um, uh, becomes everything that God has called her to be. That's your responsibility. And I've had that, I've had that echoing in my brain now for 37 years. As I was entering into the concept of getting married, I understood that's what my responsibility was. That's what I need to do. And I haven't always done a great job of it. Um, my own sin, my own selfishness gets in the way sometimes. And it did for, and I've told the story multiple times, but that sin got in the way of for, for at least two years of our marriage. And, and for me, it was like, and I'll never, for, well, never forget it. We were, we were, we had told, so we wait five years to have kids, and we wait five years, and then it was in the fifth year, and she's like, we're supposed to have kids, and we, we had agreement that we would do this, this is our plan, and I just was so into my ministry and so into my church and so into what was going on. I just didn't have time. I was like, I got all these kids. I got all this stuff to do. And we'd have argument, or not argument, really. We'd have discussion after discussion, and, um, and it was always me kind of, well, explain to me why, explain to me how, explain to me what, come on, what, and all this kind of thing. And finally, after, after two years of this, and I can remember the very spot we were in, we were driving away, and, and um, she brought it up again, and we had this conversation. I started down the path of, well, why and how and what and all this other stuff, financial this and hours at work this and all that other stuff. And she, through tears, said, I believe God has called me to be a mom. And I realized I was standing in the way of everything, of, of something that she believed God was calling her to do. And I was standing in the way of that. And it was my responsibility in that moment to lay down whatever I wanted to just say, all right, I have to, we have to step up and we're going to fulfill what God has for you. That's ultimately at the heart of what it is to be a husband and wife in marriage. As we ultimately come and we say, this is what Jesus did, did for me in the church. And I want, to be, I want to see that imaged in our relationship where I say, I want good for you. It's one of the reasons why ultimately what it comes down to is it, it, this is about the meeting of the needs of those we love, not necessarily fulfilling all the wants of those that we love. And, and, and this, is what, this is the art of Christian marriage, of understanding the needs of our spouse and being willing to lay down our wants. And ultimately, I think for husbands, it even gets to us maybe laying down our needs to meet the needs of our wives. Although I think, I really think there's a divine interaction that God brings into that um, because I don't worry about it in that regard because ultimately my needs are met in Jesus Christ. And so if I'm in a position where I have to go, you know what, 
I might need X, Y, and Z, but that's cool. I don't need to expect that of my wife. I'll just turn to Jesus and I'll have him inter interact. That's, that's why us believing in a living God is really important. But our hearts are such that we say, I need to meet your needs. Um, and as a husband, my goal is always to go, okay, what is the needs of my wife? Not necessarily what she wants. Um, I, you know, I realize God has given me all these God has given me all these responsibilities. I have all these different responsibilities he's laid out before me. I'm, he's called me to be a husband. He's called me to be, to be a father. He's called me to be a preacher. He's called me to be a Christian. He's called, these are all callings he has for me, which means when he calls me to all of these things, he believes I can fulfill all of them. The key in this is answering the needs of each of these and distinguishing between the needs and the wants. Um, my boys especially my youngest, Sam. Sam would spend, if I asked Sam, hey, how much time do you want to spend together? He would spend 24, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, hanging out, playing games, whatever. Well, he doesn't need that from me. He needs something from me. I can't just ignore him. But he doesn't need that from me. My wife, believe it or not, is kind of in the, almost the same boat. Maybe not 24-7, but my wife would, would love to spend 18 hours a day with me seven days a week. It's weird, but it's true. But, I, but, but that's, not, that's not reasonable. That's not a reasonable expectation she has for me. But I do know she does need my time. And so we have things like our Monday is our family day, and so we always spend time together on family day. As a pastor, what I've discovered is the church wants 24 hours a day, seven days a week of my time. There is, there is literally no end to what I could do for the church. And I used to live in a way in which that governed me. And I realized, no, I have to determine what the church needs, not what it wants. And I will give the church what it needs. And I believe God has brought all those together, and he realizes, if you meet all the needs, it'll be okay. Because he's, he's, he's established those callings in my life. So that's why this is always about, about looking at Jesus Christ did whatever the church needed. He doesn't give us everything we want, does he? Because in his wisdom, in his love, he's, he's going to withhold from us the things. I don't have my red Ferrari. I could pray all day for it. I don't think I'll get it. But he has always met my needs. And so that's the calling that we have within the relationship, is to model Jesus Christ in need meeting, sacrificially, out of love, so that people can see our fidelity, our unity, our, our togetherness forever. Um, now, having all said this, I didn't really get into the description of divorce here, and so maybe at some other point I'll, we'll have a conversation about it. But um, any thoughts or questions before we wrap up our time? All righty. Go ahead, Bryce.
Okay, so to clarify this, which I think is a really great clarification that gives you broader understanding of the declaration that I, that the thing I stated about Christ's affirmation in the area of, um, of sexual sin. So Christ, when he talks in there later on, and that's, we didn't really get to it, but later on, the, the whole conversation we're having in Matthew, and I'll try and do this as quickly as I can, the whole conversation we're having in Matthew is the question of divorce, really. They're coming, he's coming in and saying, what about divorce? Can you divorce for any reason? Jesus goes through and Jesus essentially says, no, you, 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 the, the, the idea that, that a husband can just put away a wife for any reason is, is, not, is not right. And I know that Moses did that, but Moses did that as a result, it says, because of the hardness of your heart. And he goes in, he says, other than for the sake of porneia, which is what he was saying, which is what, what he's referring to, that's the Greek word there, which is referring back to Leviticus that deals with all of sexual sin. It's dealing with the, it's the list of, uh, it's where we get our idea of pornography from, the word pornography from. It's, 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 it's sexual sin. And there's a whole list of things. There's, there's homosexuality, there's, there's rape, there is um, sex outside the bonds of marriage, that's a little bit different. Um, it, uh, bestiology, whatever you want to say. There's just all these different sexual sins that it's referring to. And so, so divorce for the sake of any of these sexual sins is permissible is what he's saying. Um, and so, so that there's a broader understanding as it relates to it. Now, there's two things that are implied there, one of which is um, a conversation about, okay, so what are the grounds for marriage? Jesus seems to indicate, it's a broader conversation, but Jesus seems to indicate for the sake of sexual sin, marriage is then permissible. But the other idea behind that that's important that Bruce is making on this is that Jesus is affirming those lists of sexual sins as still being sin. He's not saying, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. It's, the, it's an even deeper understanding of not only, is he, not only does he affirm marriage as between a man and a woman, that is, that is declared out of Genesis, the creation story. But he's also affirming that the list that is in Leviticus is still a valid um, prohibition. So does that make sense? Thanks, Bruce. I think it's really, really great information. Dearly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to be together. I pray that as we submit ourselves to you in all things, that you would convict us and we would respond. That whether it is in the sexual sin we may be engaging in in our lives or whether it is in the rebellion we may be in or whether it is in the way in which we treat our husbands or our wives in opposition, I pray, Lord, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would be such in our lives that we would respond, that we wouldn't in our pride, in our arrogance, say, this is what I want. And that we would do that not because we think that there's a list or rules that we're supposed to uh, abide by, but because we love Jesus so much, we want him to be evident in our lives. Father, I pray that the beauty of your word and the beauty of your gospel acts towards us would lead us to things that are outside our own nature, our own wants, our own desires, but that reveal you in deep and incredibly beautiful ways. Father, I just pray for each of us husband, wife, those of us who may be single here, those of us who may be looking towards marriage or those of us who um, may be looking back on marriage, that we would find ourselves at a place where we are um, so thankful um, for the image of Jesus Christ to be our standard. Thank you, Jesus, for your word.
your precious name we pray.